This is an ABC podcast. Jessica Johnston has been the fastest woman in the sky. When she held that record, she wasn't shooting up into space in a rocket ship or at the helm of a fighter jet. She was falling. Because Jess loves to jump out of aeroplanes. She's a skydiver. And she found skydiving after some tough years, including addiction and grief after her brother's suicide. And while it might sound like a contradiction, plummeting towards the earth at 400 kilometres an hour is kind of what saved Jess's life and helped give her purpose. Hi, Jess. Hi, how are you? I'm really well. I've never jumped out of a plane, though, Jess. Like, do you have to be an adrenaline junkie to even want to do that in the first place? Mm, No, it's funny because a lot of people think that, that I'm an adrenaline junkie because I jump out of planes. But it's it's funny, it's uh, our minds are always going 100 miles an hour, like all the time. And uh, it's the only time in my life that I've found peace. You know, (laughs) as soon as I jump out that plane, there's nothing except for that moment going through my mind, you know, and it makes you so present and... Um, but I, I recommend everyone should at least try it once because it's uh, it's life-changing and we all put those limits on ourselves, you know. So. You must have a good stomach for heights, though. Um, no, not really. I'm, I'm not not a fan of heights. Uh, it's uh, I remember roofing with my mate and holding on for dear life onto the... Onto the um, would and I was just they're all laughing at me because they're like you're a skydiver I'm like man the ground's right there guys you know so it's it's um it's a bit different and there's a lot of skydivers that are scared of heights what it feels more precarious when you can actually see the ground that you might fall into than when you're up out of a plane (laughs) yeah yeah 100 percent 100 percent well take me through a skydive Jess like what's it like inside the plane on the way to a jump how much space do you have um, depends what aircraft we're in. Um, sometimes we're in the big caravans, which can take up to 16 people. Um, the smaller ones, the Cessnas, they can take up to five people. Um, but just depends. The Cessnas take about 25 minutes to get to 14,000 feet and uh, the caravans can get up in nine minutes, so they're a lot quicker as well. And is the atmosphere, you know, are people excited or...? or... Um, so that, that that generally, especially if you're jumping with um, a group of tandems, the energy and the nerve, nerves in the plane are actually really high because that's that's where they are, you know, until you jump out, all the all, all everything's with you, all those thoughts of what could happen and everything like that, you know. But when it comes to like jumping with mates, you know, a lot of us are just visualizing the jump and what we're going to be doing um, and just trying to calm ourselves, a slow our breaths down, a lot of breathing, breath work as well. Is it noisy in those those different planes or yep. or are you, so you're <laughs> yep. not talking to each other really? Oh, you can talk to each other. Yeah, you can. Um, you just kind of got to be looking at each other so you can kind of get the sound going across. But uh, and, yeah. and tell me about that moment right before you step out of the open door. When I started, it was just every single thought you can think of before you jump out, you know, what could go wrong? What's going to go right? Am I going to do this right? You know, and uh, where now it's a lot, lot more peaceful. Um, we try and calm ourselves down. And once you've, I've got over 1300 skydives now, which, you know, allows you to control your emotions a lot better. So. And then when you step out and, and are falling before the, the parachute is open, what's that like inside your mind? 
Oh, man, depends what you're doing on the jump. If I'm doing a speed run, it's uh, very just trying to calm, focus on my breathing, focus on my body position. Um, when you're jumping with mates, it's uh, you're thinking about the jump, thinking about where you need to be and just, you know, looking across at your mates and the smiles that you get is just awesome, you know. So. And what about your body, Jess? I mean, do you get that? that feeling in your stomach you get like when you're going down on a roller coaster? No. Not that I've been on a roller coaster. Really? But no. <laughs> I've jumped out of uh, choppers and hot air balloons, so they give a different kind of sensation. When you're jumping out of a moving aircraft, you don't get that falling sensation, where if you jump out of a chopper or a hot air balloon that is stationary, it will. Um, you get that falling sensation. And how long till you pull the cord? Like how long till the actual parachute is open? So if I'm doing a speed jump, about 30 seconds from 15,000 feet. And if I'm doing just a fun jump, about a minute. And is that a big change once the, the chute's open? It, it gets very peaceful. Uh, so when you're in fall, it is very noisy. And then once you open your parachute, everything gets very, very quiet. What's it noisy with? Just the sound of falling. You're going over 200 kilometres an hour just in a normal jump. So the fastest I've been is over 400, 427 kilometres per hour is my fastest speed. Yeah, so those, those speeds are very noisy. It's like your head out of, really, out of the window of a really fast-moving you yep. is what I so like to compare it to. Yeah, 100%. And are you looking around you? Like, Can you take in the view or, or is everything happening too quickly for that? When you're in free fall, um, when you're doing solo jumps, you can. I generally focus on the horizon, but you're thinking a bit too much to kind of take in the jump. Some jumps, when you're doing fun jumps with other people, you get the sunset and you just see the view behind them in the sunset, and you're just like, "Oh wow, that's that's magnificent!" So, and then underneath the parachute, it's just oh, the views that you get because everything slows down. You got time, you got to look around for everyone else and just do the safety stuff first, and then yeah, you, you've got the whole view to yourself. You know, mm. especially when we jump at Tully, you've got the whole view, the Great Barrier Reef, and just the sunsets there are something else. Huh. What are some of the other things that only skydivers get to see from up high? Oh, you get to see round rainbows. No way. <laughs> Which is the coolest thing ever. Um, like, yeah, for some reason I, I can't explain how it happens. But, uh, yeah, we get full round rainbows and which I think is just absolutely beautiful. Just off into the distance, instead of like a half rainbow, it's a full circle because I think you're kind of you're looking down a bit more so it's not cutting off the other half. <laughs> and um, we get to see two sunsets sometimes, which is really cool. You kind of watch the sunset on the ground and then you go up and then in free fall you watch the sunset again and, <laughs> and land, which is pretty special. And when you land, Jess, is it with a thud? No. <laughs> oh, it just depends. Depends. <laughs> so we always try and do the best we can, you know. If we can do a stand-up landing, that's that's the ultimate, you know. Sometimes the speeds that we are travelling are a bit too fast, so we can kind of sit down and uh, if you flare wrong your timing of kind of... It's kind of like putting on your brakes. If you flare wrong at the wrong timing, it can kind of put you down with a thud. But uh, generally we try and do it as smooth as possible. What do you mean by flare? 
things that we hold on to steer with, like they turn right and left. They're called like our steering lines, control lines. Um, we got little handles on them so we can turn right or left with those. And as we're coming into land, what we want to do is pull both of them down evenly because what that does is pull the back of your canopy down and slows you down. Yeah, so that's your flare, which you need to do when landing at every single, on every single jump. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about your records later on, but yeah. I guess every time you've landed in one piece, it must feel like you've won. Yeah, 100%. Like, that's the ultimate of, even if you kind of don't do a jump the best, if you land safely, it's the best because you, you get an opportunity to try that again and just get, a, get better and improve. Once you've you've landed and, and hopefully with not too much of a thud and you stand up, what's gracefully. next? <laughs> <laughs> when we land gracefully. <laughs> Usually frothing with our friends, you know, like, um, yeah, kind of screaming out, yelling to each other, just happy is the ultimate feeling, empowered, kind of, especially when I first started the nerves. I was so nervous when I first started jumping. Like, I'll drive three hours out to the drop zone, throw my guts up and drive home again because I was that nervous. <laughs> You're kidding. My mum would just laugh at me. She will come out to the drop zone to watch me throw up. <laughs> <laughs> would you still, so. would you still, still jump after you'd thrown up? Or? No, no, I'd drive home and chicken out. So, yeah. <laughs> but there was something that, you know, when you learn, there's that, that feeling of just such an accomplishment because especially the way you felt, you're like, holy cow, I felt like that and I did this. Mm. And that's very empowering. What sort of preparations go on before a jump? What do you have to do? Um, so we generally create a jump. So if we're jumping with friends, we'll create a jump of what we plan to do on that jump. And then we'll go brief it and we'll either have the creepers out if we're doing kind of a belly jump and we'll go up. Okay, what's a creeper? What's a creeper? A creeper is kind of like a skateboard that we all kind of lay on our bellies with and roll around on the ground pretty much. So <laughs> To practice what it'll look like when you're in the sky. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So that's if you're doing a belly jump because there's different orientations that you can fly. So when you first start flying, you're falling belly to earth, kind of in a tandem, same same as you would in a tandem. And then you can start learning. So you start learning head up, which is kind of like in the sitter position that we're seated now, you know, and so you're head up flying that that orientation. And then you've got like head down as well, which is flying the head down orientation. And then angles as well, so kind of movement jumps across the sky, which are always fun. And how do you do those? <laughs> Just learning how to fly your body, it, it's all a progression of learning to fly with your belly, you know, and then uh, you start learning how to turn and even during your course you do backflips just to kind of show that you can get stable again, you know. And, and to what extent can you control where you land? If you listen to your instructors and kind of do what they say, um, there's always kind of going to be variables but generally you can land where you want to land. Like for me, I'm, yeah, I've got my display pro, which means I can land in smaller areas like football fields with crowds. And it's just a working up to that. You know, we also do a jump where we land um, on Taylor Cay, which is a sandbar in the middle of the Great Barrier Reef, you know. So if you land off there, you're in the water. <laughs> Have you ever had something go wrong in a jump, like in terms of wind direction or, or misjudging speed or, or something like that? Um, I, the only injury I've had through skydiving is rolling an ankle and there was just a little dip in the grass 
like a little pothole in the ground. So it was and, the injury you got on the ground. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> most most landings, uh, most um, injuries are caused by the ground. <laughs> so, so you really Landing. can you really can predict what the conditions are going to be like when you jump out of that plane. Yeah, 100%. We always got communication with the ground, so they generally send up the winds just before we jump of what direction and strength they're going to be. And, yeah, yeah, we've always kind of... We let the smaller canopies land first and then the larger canopies and always kind of got a major plan with landing because that's the most important bit. We don't want to get wrapped up with other people. We don't. We want to have our own clear airspace um, to be able to fly in. So you say you don't like heights, Jess. No. <laughs> Were you a daredevil as a kid? My parents used to own a motorbike shop, so I was always on the bike. Um, what, where I would you ride? What kind of riding would you do? Oh, just mainly out in the bush. Um, we'd go down to Manjimuff as little, little kids and uh, ride on the track down there and race down there and Quinana as well, which was always fun. This was over in Western Australia. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I definitely had a lot more courage, you know. It's funny because I get on a bike now and I'm so timid and I'm just like, yeah, but if I fall off and break myself, that's time off work and, you know, how am I going to create income while I'm while I'm off injured? And when you're a kid, you're like, yes, time off school, you know. <laughs> so it's a bit, di- bit different. How did you start uh, riding horses then? If you were into motorbikes, how did horses come Well, along? when my parents split up, um, my mum to Margaret River and they were down there surfing a lot and then they moved out to Dwelling Up um, which is out in the middle of the country in Western Australia and I I remember just saying to my mum I was like 12, 13 I'm like mum I want a horse you know and she always wanted a horse too and it was like oh well we can actually get a horse. So me and my mum got, got a horse together. And my first ones when I started racing, because I started doing barrel racing in the rodeo circuit, and those two were the first two horses that we bought because we were just free leasing the first two. Um, and then we ended up buying, yeah, Charlie Brown and Annie Oakley, well, which were beautiful horses. Tell me about the first rodeo you saw that made you want to get into to riding in rodeos. Um, it was at Pinjarra, which is where I went to the high school, and they've got a rodeo arena there. And I remember just the atmosphere and, like, seeing seeing it all and the excitement and being on horses, you know, that was something that I've never, you know, I never kind of... I did a little bit of pony club when I was little, but I'd never kind of been around a lot of horses, and it was just a really amazing atmosphere, and the community seemed really cool. Were there some good outfits? Yes. <laughs> Good old Western. It's like it's a whole nother world out there. So did you have All a big hat and, and a yeah, big buckle? Yeah, big a Cobra. Yeah, I want a, want a few uh, belt buckles as well because that's that's what you win as a trophy um, when you're doing that. Is so a big belt buckle. What was the competition that you were doing? What were you riding in the rodeo? In the rodeo. So I mainly did barrel racing, which is kind of like three barrels set up in a triangle, and it's your fastest time kind of like figure eight around the first two and then up around the last and back home. Um, that was the first one. And then a bit of roping as well, which was a bit of fun, just, uh, yeah, roping some cattle. <laughs> the, the big difference, I guess, between riding bikes and riding horses is that the horse can has got its own mind and, 100%, you know, you've got to have do. a relationship. How, yeah. how do you and build that with an with a animal in that context? I think I've always just had the biggest love for animals. No matter what it is, I'm going to have a connection. No matter whether I've been bitten by a dog, I still love that animal, you know. So, um, And it's really cool. Once, once you understand horses have empathy and they can feel your energy, it's um, very important. 
So you were really good with horses, good on bikes, all these physical skills. What was school like for you as a kid? Um, very challenging until I went to ag school, so um, which is an agricultural college. That was over in Western Australia where you do like half a week school, half a week farm, half a week school, half a week metalwork, automotive, building construction, all that kind of stuff. It's uh, a lot of fun. And then on the farm you'd be doing everything from um, beef, beef cattle, dairy, chickens, viticulture, horticulture, everything. It was really cool. It was a boarding school as well. So, How did that come about, that shift from regular school to agricultural school, which sounds like a much better fit? Yeah. Well, I think mum just knew how much I wagged from normal school. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, my mum drove the school bus from dwelling up to Pinjarra and she would know before I even got on the bus, like, how was your day down the river, Jess? <laughs> oh, damn. Like, Going to be in trouble tonight. <laughs> Wait, you, you'd wag even though your mum was a school bus driver. That's, that's yeah. next level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so pretty cool. So ag school was, was a good fit. What did you want to do when you left then? What was your plan? Um, well, I did have a school-based traineeship, which was uh, metals and engineering at Alcoa, which I'd go out every Friday out to the refinery. So I, I did kind of think of that, but then I kind of left home in a bit of a haste and kind of like, I'm better off on my own, don't need my parents, which is not true. <laughs> there was a lot going on in your family as well. Tell me yeah. about the kind of relationship that you had with your brother, Daniel, growing up. Were you close? Yeah, yeah, we were really close. Um, we had to, um, when my parents split up, had to live live with my, my dad, which, um, yeah, being a mum's girl, I always wanted to stay with mum. But, uh, yeah, we, we ended up living with him. And, yeah, so it was me and him. We were really close. Um, were you similar? We had, no. Nah, <laughs> nah, nah. He's, he's, he's very... He was a lot more um, introverted than me, um, a lot more analytical than me. <laughs> he was a thinker. He was a very big thinker. And how, how old but, were you when he took his own life? I was 18, so it was eight days after my 18th birthday that he took his own life. He was 21. Um, it was, I hate to say it, expected. Um, we, had, we had a bit of a challenging childhood growing up with um, some abuse through a family member, which always kind of stuffs your trust up. But, uh, um, yeah, he he didn't handle that as well as... I have been able to, but still something I struggle with, you know, but it's a lifelong journey as long as you're kind of working towards being the best person you can be. And you have moments in your life where you kind of realise all that happened for a reason. Even even all the bad things, they're all meant to happen because there's certain moments in your life where you are the happiest and you're just like, if I didn't, all that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here where I am right now. Back at 18, what kind of impact did did losing your brother have on on you and and how you thought about life and and what mattered? Yeah, I I, I definitely wasn't self-aware back then and um, after he died I started drinking a lot more and taking a lot more drugs and I didn't didn't work for a long time, you know, and um, Something I've realised now is just because someone dies doesn't mean you did, you know, and doesn't mean you need to stop your life just because they, they've they taken theirs. 
You you decided to escape literally and bought a, a Toyota Hiace. Where did you head? Around Australia. <laughs> so I started off in Western Australia um, and then went south, Albany, Esperance, all the way across to stayed in South Australia for a bit and then down to Tasmania, worked down there for a while, back up the East Coast and worked in uh, Queensland for a while and then back across to Northern Territory and all the way back down Pilbara, back home. So that was that was a big trip. Did you feel <laughs> like you were running from something or, or or was it not like that? I think I didn't think I maybe I might have been running from something but I think for more for me it was learning who I am trying to figure out who I am you know because I had no idea who I am who I was what I wanted to do um I didn't realize life could be just taken away that easily so it was kind of you do live a lot more in the moment. And how much a part of your life were drugs and alcohol back then? Um, quite a bit. Um, I was quite a functional functional drug addict, <laughs> luckily. Um, what do you mean? I'm still able to complete daily life and go on, go on with life while using a lot of drugs and alcohol. Um, what made you change then? What put an end to that? Um, the guy I was seeing at the time as well, I had a house, I had a awesome job and then we broke up, which, or he broke up with me, which was, I don't know, he was a lot older, so I was a lot younger and dumber. <laughs> so yeah, after that it was, you know, I felt I'd lost a lot of things and p- people that you think you know, you don't really know and do stuff to hurt you intentionally, which is never really nice, which kind of sidetracks you a bit. (laughs) So when you decided that you wanted to change, where did you start? Who did you call? My mum. My mum was the one that I rang and, I, you know, you get to a certain point where you're just like, you can't go on because, you know, if you go on, it's just going to be complete downhill and the deeper you go, the harder it is to get out. And so I called my mum and uh, ended up going to rehab. I was in there for nine months. Um, it was a strange rehab. Um, Tell me it, about uh, it. Um, it was called Narconon. It was in Victoria, out in Warburton. And it was once you're out there, they kind of make you realise that it's all Scientology based and based on the books of L. Ron Hubbard, which is a bit different. Once you realise he's a science fiction writer, you're just like, oh, okay, he and, created a religion too. And you hadn't realised that when you, you signed up to go to rehab there? Well, I kind of wanted to get off drugs without taking other antidepressants or anything like that. And, uh, you know, my mum's, she just didn't know what to do. She's really lost one one kid to suicide and she's just like, let's, you know, and this one came up and they advertise it really well to be able to kind of pull you in. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, it, it wasn't the wrong thing at all because I did, I did learn from that. I did get a lot of stuff out of the rehab, even though I didn't finish the program, I kind of <laughs> realised that they were a bit crazy. And uh, But, you know, the other people in there made me realise, you know, I'm not a, not a heroin addict. I'm not, not shooting up needles. I'm not 
at that point of, you know, I, I, I can still come back from this, you know, and if these people that are that far gone can come back, you know, I do, I, I've got this. So was, that really helped me. Was there a moment when you realised this isn't the place for me? Did something happen? Yeah, yeah. So they, um, they run you through these different books, you know, and uh, there was one, one book where you kind of, you're paired up with a twin from when you go into the withdrawal house and, yeah, they make you do objectives. So you'll be sitting there and kind of moving something around or doing some sort of task. And if you tell them that you have an out-of-body experience, like, oh, my God, I see myself sitting up on that beam and, uh, you know, with no delay and anything I was doing and it was amazing and, oh, my God, wow, wow. And so if you tell them you have one of these experiences, and I'm like, if we tell you we have one of these experiences, why do you move us onto the next objective without questioning us? And they're like, well, we're not high enough in the Scientology level that if you're in that, we can't actually bring you out of that. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I think these guys need to be on drugs. Like, <laughs> So it was, it was really interesting because I'm just like, you know, when you're yelling at an ashtray to stand up and sit down, you're just like, these guys are weird, you know. If they're making us do this, you know, we're meant to have these life-changing cognitions doing these objectives, but it was more the connections you made with your twin and, you know, the people that you're in there with that definitely helped more than the stuff they made you do. <laughs> so how, how did it feel walking out of that place then after nine months? I felt like I let my mum down because I didn't finish the program. But, you know, I try to do the best I can after that. Me and her are best mates now, you know. So, um, yeah, she understands, you know, I've come a long way since since that time, you know. And so... Yeah, I think coming out of there knowing now that I am a stronger person and I did learn a lot from that experience, it was meant to be. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. After you checked out of rehab, Jess, what did you decide to do for work? So I ended up kind of creating my own rehab where I worked fly in, fly out, you know, so I got drug tested a lot out on, on the mine sites and had to be drug tested to be able to get the job as right. well. So that was going to be like your accountability? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was that tough? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I find it really hard. You kind of don't want to tell anyone when you're going for interviews or kind of speak about it because sometimes people think a bit less of you. Yeah. Where was your first FIFO experience? Where did you work first off? Out at Mullamulla, which is in Area C, which is uh, kind of inland from Port Hedland area. And that was that was cool. That was a two-in-one experience roster. So that was... What's two-in-one mean? So I'll work for two weeks and have one week off. And what were you doing on, on those weeks that you were working? 
Um, I was an underwater porcelain technician. So what I, does um, that mean? It means I scrub dunnies. <laughs> 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 underwater ceramic technician, I uh, scrub dishes, you know. Uh, yeah. Were you making good money doing that? Oh, great, great money. Definitely, definitely good money. How did you spend that money in your week off? Travel. Travel. I didn't save any of it. Where did you go? What did you get up to? Um, so I went to places like Cambodia, New Zealand, Bali, took my parents to Fiji, which was amazing. A lot of Australia as well. I kept going around Australia. I love Australia so much. It's it's Even though I wasn't born here, I was born in South Africa, but I grew, grew up here. So this is home for me and I've travelled a lot around Australia. I've done the Nullarbor four or five times now and I've done the Outback Way, which is straight across the middle. Um, it's home for me here. So you'd but, have these weeks of kind of extraordinary experiences and then yeah. go back to the mine for two weeks. Yeah. And you then moved to Barrow Island. What's Barrow Island? What's it look like? So that's a little island um, off the coast of uh, Port Hedland. It's it's a beautiful island. It's got a really unique habitat out there. But you're not allowed to really do anything out there. You got to wear. You can't even go down to the beach or anything. You kind of got to stay within the bounds of the the uh, camps. Unfortunately, unless you're out actually working on site, it's a protected island. That must make life pretty weird when you're there. How, how did you spend your days? I started drinking again a little bit, so I drank a little bit, but um, I try and just, you know, when you're working, you're working 12 hours a day. You kind of eat, sleep, work, eat, sleep, repeat, you know. What kind of rapport is there with other people working in somewhere as uh, remote and, and isolated like that? Did you have good friendships? Yeah, you make some really good connections out there for sure. Um you definitely learn there's a lot of challenging people in the workplace as well. But, uh, yeah, I, I ended up uh, sharing a room. So they paid you $150 a day just to share a room with someone, which was pretty crazy. Was it worth it or was that, yeah, was that a high price it was to pay? Worth it, man, I remember working in the snowfields where I'm paying 150 bucks to share with six people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was during this time, Jess, that you decided to give skydiving a go for the first time. How did that come about? Where were you? I decided to fly up to Cairns, where I am now, and came up here for one of the R&Rs and they're like, the thing to do in Cairns is go skydiving. So I'm like, all right, booked a skydive. Was and, it something uh, you'd thought of before no, or wanted to do? No, no. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but, you know, when you've got kind of, I called it flashpacking. I had the money to kind of do whatever I wanted. Um, and how old I was were you? In the mines. Uh, that was, oh, I was 27, 28. Yeah, 28. So yeah, you, you had cash, you know, burning a hole in your pocket. Yep. You found yourself in cans for a week. What was the yep. first jump like? Oh, uh, on the way to the airport and just on the way to the uh, drop zone, it was just... You're so, you think of everything that can go wrong. What if the parachute doesn't work, you know? And the, you're just so naive to everything that it in, includes and entails. And on the way there, it was, 
oh, I was so nervous and just that thought, why am I doing this? Why am I doing that whole saying? Why do you jump out of a perfectly good plane? Like, why? <laughs> it's, uh, and what answers were you coming up with? Not many. <laughs> it's just like kind of just trust, trust, you know, if other people have done this, why, why can't I do it? You know, why am I putting that limit on myself? And so, yeah, I remember doing it. And the guy that, the gentleman that took me, um, he was really cool. And I just remember the conversations with him were just really open and just talking about the sport and just how much love he had for the sport. It was really cool to listen to and realising, you know, he's like, you know, you could do this. And I'm just like, never, you know, until someone said that, I never thought I could do that, you know, like to do it by myself as well. I'm just like, me? No way. That's not a thing I could do. And, um, yeah, and then I remember jumping and free fall. There was, it's just, I remember landing going, what just happened? I have no idea. That was just insane. Like I, you, you kind of blank out bits when you go for your first jump. It's not. It's not that you kind of completely black out, but there's so much information going into your mind that you kind of have sensory overload, we call it in skydiving, where it's just you kind of forget things that, that actually happened. So how long till you, you had another skydive after that very first one? So I went back out into the mines and I worked there for another couple of months and then there was another suicide on the island and I'm like, no, I'm out of here. Had that been, had that been happening? Had there been people taking yeah, their own lives? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It happened once before while I was out on the island and uh, then my other friend actually went into the room and found the other one, <laughs> which kind of I was just like, after that, it's like, no, nah, I'm done. Um and, yeah, so I moved across to Queensland, started my skydiving course. In terms of that decision, so you've been making this good money doing this work that kind of let you live your own life in the weeks that you weren't working. Was that scary to step away from that, from that yeah, income? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> 100%. I think that's why a lot of people get stuck into that industry is because they think they need that money to be happy, which is not true. Was there a moment that that let you make that decision or what do you remember about that choice of, of leaving being a FIFO worker and, and deciding to become a skydiver? I think it was... There's a lot of depression out on those in fly, in fly and fly out camps and, you know, you, you see that a lot and after working 28 and 7 roster, so 28 days on and 7 days off, it it starts to take a toll on you and you kind of... For me, I'm just like, no, I'm done with this. There's, there's got to be something else, you know, and I realise, you know, if something's not working, just change it. So where where did you start once you decided you wanted to really jump in, excuse the pun, into skydiving? What, what did you do? Oh, so I looked over in WA. Um, there was Durian Bay that I looked into, but they only do it certain times of the year because of the winds up there. Um, so I ended up moving to Queensland. I'm like... I'll give it a go, moved to Queensland. My, my fa- some of my family was over here at the time. So packed up my car. My my car's my longest relationship. Her name's Lolly. <laughs> I love her. So packed her up and my friend decided she was going to come with me for the trip across. We ended up driving across the middle of Australia, which is like nearly 3,700 3, k's and 1,600 k's of dirt road straight across the middle to Queensland and... Uh, uh, started my skydiving course out at Tagulawa, just inland from Brisbane. What happens in the course? The first first day and day or two, you're doing ground school, so you're learning about like the equipment, the jump, 
uh, emergency procedures, landing, all that kind of stuff that's involved with learning how to skydive. And then on the next day, you're going to be doing your stage one. So there's nine stages. The first four stages, you've got two instructors holding onto you either side of you in free fall. And then under canopy, you deploy your own parachute. And then under canopy, you're by yourself, but you've got a radio so they can still communicate and talk to you. And they've got flags on the ground to be able to point you where you need to go in case that doesn't work as well, um, which is stuff you learn through the ground training. And then the fifth jump, you go down to a single instructor and, you know, they start letting you go. You start um, doing flips and stuff. And same thing, always every single jump you've got a parachute landing. So we're always working on our canopy skills to be able to land that parachute safely so we can do it again. And then I was stage nine, which is the last stage in your accelerated pre-fall course, that is jumping out at 5,000 feet and deploying your parachute straight away. So that just shows that if there is anything wrong with the aircraft, that you can jump out, get stable, deploy your parachute and land. How exhilarating yeah. was the first jump you did all, all by yourself? <laughs> so during the course, it's pretty full on. You've got so much that you need to be... And you're like, oh, my God, you need me to fit that all in in one minute? And um, I remember my first solo jump completely by myself. I remember jumping out and just... Realising how long a minute is. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, I've got so much time to do a lot of things, like <laughs> include breathe, <laughs> which was really cool, you know, that realisation of, oh, wow, you know, it's a long time. Yeah. What did your mum think about this new path, Jess? She, she loves it. She loves it. She reckons it's great. She's always been out in the drop zone um, pretty much from the time I've started. Um, when I was out at Tagulua learning how to skydive. And she's been for two tandem skydives as well. And with I've taken. You? Not with me. I don't do tandems, but I was. Uh, one of them I was flying on the outside with her so I could still come up, hold her hand, <laughs> which was really, really cool. And my mum, she's a frother. She loves it. She, <laughs> I have no doubt she'll start her course one day once she saves enough money. And, um, and taking her to the indoor skydiving tunnel as well, you know, which is really, really cool. She, she loves it in there. So what you're describing already sounds crazy enough to me, Jess, but then you do something else called speed skydiving. What, what is that? So speed skydiving is going as fast as you possibly humanly can, which is a lot of fun. And uh, How do you make yourself go faster when you've fallen out of a plane, jumped out oh, of a plane? I'm still trying to work that out. <laughs> but... Um, it's been the sport's been gone for a while, but the uh, the discipline's been gone for a while. But it's definitely getting refined over the last few years with the new technology to be able to call, record the speeds accurately. Um, we have a GPS tracker now, so it records them very accurately. And then that discipline of just being able to calm your mind at the speeds that you're going, the body position, and just experience in flying as well, being able to... Because you get kind of like the speed wobbles where you start wobbling insanely like you would on a bike and you kind of got to speed up through those moments because otherwise you kind of cork out, which is kind of like losing control a little bit. How do you um, do the jump differently, though, than a regular skydive? What's different? So we'll be kind of like pin dropping but head first. So head we first. want to very Yeah, yeah, head first, straight to the ground. We want to be as vertical as possible and then... 
also just less drag. So our clothing, we want really tight suits as well. And then, yeah, being able to keep calm in those those moments of speed. How long are you there, head first, plummeting towards the ground before you open your parachute? About 30 seconds. Yeah, not long. <laughs> Pretty much cuts the jump in half. Cause we're falling normally about 200 kilometres an hour and, yeah, my fastest 427. 427. Does, it, does that 30 seconds feel like a long time? No, it's over quite quickly. Um, and our, our discipline's quite hard to be able to con- critique. Critique. Ah. critique. <laughs> because we don't have camera, so we don't actually have a visual of what we're doing at a certain point in the jump. We can just be like, all right, at that time, 10 seconds after I left the aircraft, I was going my fastest speed. But it's like, well, what was I doing at that <laughs> speed to get that? You know, it's a, it's a very, very new sport, but there's been some insane, records broken. Um, one of my mates, Tish, is amazing, uh, Natisha Dingle. She has just broken the female world record, which I'm super stoked. She smashed my Australian and Oceanic record and held, holds the current female world record at 491 kilometres per hour. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. And Marco Hepp from Germany, he's an amazing human as well. He's broken the record, I believe it was 527 kilometres for the males. Next level with speed. It's faster than a Formula One car. Yeah, it's it's next level speeds. I can hear the excitement in you, yeah. in, in you describing <laughs> this. So how did you first get started in, in speed skydiving? Oh, I kind of fell into it. <laughs> it was, it was um, I, I went to a nationals at Maria down in New South Wales just to pack a, my job that I do a lot in the industry is packing parachutes and I do reserve, so emergency parachutes as well. And I went down there just to work and then they're like, oh, we've... They've got new devices, so we're they they went from barometric measurement device to a GPS tracking device, so all the old records got archived. And they're like, if you win, you set a new world record. If you want to have a go, I'm like, what do you need to do? And they're like, fly head down as fast as you can. I'm like, I'm like, you guys know I can't fly head down, right? You know. <laughs> so, and I remember going to see Ronnie, one of my mentors. He actually took me for my very first skydive, and I said to him, "I'm like, what do you reckon? Like, should I go?" He's like, "You know where Manifest is, where you go." So, I ended up going and registering. I'm like, "All right, I'll give it a go," and uh, I ended up coming first. I'm like, "Wow!" <laughs> so, um, my fastest speed in that competition was 375 kilometres per hour, so for the first time I was pretty happy. <laughs> and, was, and was it a different thrill than a, a regular skydive? Yeah, well, I don't generally jump solo. You want to be jumping with your mates, you know, even um, in competition you'd kind of want to be jumping with your friends, but this one it's a it's a very solo sport and you've got to... But you've got your team as well. You've got the speed speed skydivers that are kind of your mates that you hang out with during the competition, which are cool people to be around. Is there any way you can train for it? Like the way you're describing it is you're not quite sure how you can make yourself faster. It's all still so yeah. new. Is there any way you, you can physically prepare for for this kind of jumping? I think experience in jumping, the more experience you have in the wind and be able to control your body in the wind and those speeds and also being able to control your mind 
is priceless in getting faster. Is that something you you work on outside of jumping? Like how do you work on controlling your mind in regular life? Oh, meditation, exercising, trying to do those things that are, are good for you. I think a lot of us procrastinate in life and kind of think about everything before we go and do it. And I think it's about just going and doing it. So how many jumps have you done now, Jess? So I've got... 1,319. Is that considered a lot? No. No? No, no, not What's really. What's a lot? <laughs> well, where I'm, I stay at uh, Cairns Skydive, which is in Innisfail, uh, the owner of that company, he has just completed his 37,000th skydive the other week, which is just, that's just mind-blowing, you know. That's, that's just next level. He's like seven, over 70 years old and still jumping, doing tandems, just a absolute machine, you know, a very good mindset. Is, is there any age limit then to no. skydiving? No, no. So can you imagine yourself as a very old lady doing yep. this still? Yep. <laughs> it was funny. I've had friends that got pregnant and stuff like that. I'm like, man, I would never do that because then you got to stop jumping. <laughs> <laughs> and same thing when I'm older. I'm like, I don't think I'd want to stop jumping. I think it'd be that, you know, you got to look after your body so you can do it as long as possible. If you find something that makes you happy, you just do what you can to keep doing it. What other kind of jumping do you want to try, Jess? Base jumping would be the next go. I've just paid my deposit for the Learn to Base Jump course with Dukes. Okay, I feel like I've got to stop asking you to explain things to me that actually make me feel physically <laughs> sick. But what's base jumping? <laughs> so base jumping is jumping off a fixed object. So like saying bridges, buildings, antennas, cliffs. And with a parachute... Yeah, with a parachute, but it's a bit different. So I because feel like we've got to just check that with a parachute. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely parachute. with a parachute. Yeah, yeah. I'm scared of jumping off cliffs without parachutes. And, and, and so, how would that be a different experience than than out of a plane? So with base jumping, you've only got one parachute. With skydiving, you've got a main parachute, you've got an emergency parachute, and you've also got this little device in there called an automatic activation device, which will, if you get knocked unconscious, this is going to register you're falling below a certain height at a certain speed and automatically deploy your reserve parachute. Base jumping, you have one parachute and that is it. So if you open up facing the building or the cliff, that's not a good situation. Um, if you have a malfunction on your parachute, that's not a good situation. It's um, it's a lot more riskier. So, so explain yes. to me the appeal. I think it's... Um, I think everyone's kind of watched those videos of the wingsuiters flying down those mountains, cruising past the mountains at 100 kilometres an hour. I think that's that's kind of everyone where everyone looks at to start with. But I got to... One of my ex-boyfriends was a base jumper as well, so I got to go to the Kuala Lumpur base jumping event where they're all just jumping off this big tower and they're allowed to do it, which is really cool. In Australia, it's illegal to base jump, so we can't really do it here. Um, but I think the experience, the community that you meet, the community that you create with base jumping and 
the fact it is a bit more riskier, you're kind of pushing those limits, but you want to do it safely so you can do it again as well. Mm. But I don't know, I just it's something I've wanted to do and I um I think maybe I, I might even do my course and be, hey, that's not for me and that's okay, you know, but it, as long as I'm, you know, I've got my goals and I'm working towards those and So where do you go to learn to, to base jump? So I, I would have always said that I was going to do my course with Dukes, Christopher McDonald. Um, he runs the Learn to Base Jump course in Croatia and they do Croatia, Italy, Italy and Switzerland. And, yeah, I would be doing the course with him for sure. <laughs> Longest living base jumper, so. Oh, <laughs> it's that, it's that having to add the living into that description. Yeah. That, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> the thing is I've, I've always, um, everyone I knew before I started skydiving, if they died, they died of shit circumstances, so suicides, drug overdoses, stuff like that, you know. People that die skydiving or base jumping, they're, they're kind of pushing their limits and kind of, I don't know, they're living. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. Who's going to go with you on that big, big adventure? Oh, well, I'm definitely planning to take my dog Rasta. He's my man. He's an absolute gentleman. He's a blue healer. Yeah, blue healer cross. He's just, he got dumped on me this, I found him wandering and um, ended up finding the owner and they're like, you can just have him if you want. I'm just like, love, I'm living in my car out the back of the drop zone. Like, I can't just say yes to your dog. That's really weird, you know. And then um, she comes back two hours later and she's like, just try him out. You can keep him tied up for weeks as long as he's got food and water. I'm like, you what? Like, no. So I end up being my dog and, yeah, I was going to rehome him, but I'm just like, the connection we have is just, he was what I needed, you know. It's um, yeah. He's <laughs> definitely coming with me. I've, I was thinking, do I go over and come back and then wait? And then I'm just like, nah. He's got to come with me. His <laughs> life's just better with a dog. If you don't have a dog, get a dog. <laughs> life's just better with a dog. They're better than people. I hate to say it, but they're better than people. <laughs> just love. Can you imagine what your life might look like now if you hadn't discovered skydiving on that holiday in Cairns? Oh, I kind of don't think I want to. Oh, skydiving has really brought me self-awareness and it's a journey that I am so grateful to be on and I think that, you know, I'm not sure what other sports would have kind of brought me that self-awareness. How has it changed how you see yourself? Um, I realise I used to be a victim a lot um, and I don't want to be a victim anymore of my circumstances. Like, yes, my brother killed himself, yes, I ended up in rehab and depression and all that stuff but I don't want that to kind of limit or define me anymore I'm not that person I'm just on the journey and just trying to be the best version I can be of myself has it made you appreciate your abilities differently or your your power differently um I've still got a long way to go um Struggle a bit with self-worth, so I think we're working towards that. But um, reflection definitely helps, kind of looking back and going, all right, I've done this and I've overcome all this stuff, you know. And if that was a friend, you would admire them so much. So do the same with yourself. Yeah. Tell me about the memorable jump that you made in South Africa, Jess. So being born in South Africa, I came over when I was one. I was very little. I can't remember much South Africa, but when um. When I was um, a bit older and started skydiving, I um, went to South Africa. Um, my mates were on a base jumping trip and I went skydiving. And my mum gave me some of my brother's ashes just to take back to South Africa, just so he could have come to South Africa with me. 
and I got to do a wingsuit rodeo. So those wingsuits that you see flying around, I was riding, holding on the back of one of those and I got to spread my brother's ashes over in South Africa, which was so special. That was um, being able to, I don't know, even have that video to share with my mum and that time you think you're going to be down and out you just, <laughs> you're the most happiest you've ever been. You're like, what? You know, it's, um, yeah. I think there are going to be so many more adventures to come, Jess. Thank you so much for giving 100%. us a little window into your life. Thanks for being my guest. No, I appreciate it, Sarah. It's been a great conversation. Jessica Johnston was my guest on Conversations Today. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.